what we're going to be doing is unique. And uh, what I mean by unique is simply this. What Larry preached on last week in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy uh, dealt with a topic which can be somewhat controversial about roles uh, for men and women. And we're going to continue that, that topic into chapter 3 because chapter 3 really out, is an outpouring or outflow uh, of what was said in chapter 2. And so we're going to be looking at elders and deacons, but we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the nature of uh, an elder and, and who's eligible for that and, and all that good stuff. But what we're going to see is this, is that elders and deacons are ordained by God to be godly leaders in God's household. And it's an important thing that God is the one who decides who is going to be an elder and deacon. It is God who sets forward the qualifications and stipulations for who can and can't be uh, a, a leader in those offices. And it's, it's God who ultimately raises uh, people up to serve in that capacity. And so it's important for us to just understand that from the beginning, that this is God's doing. The church is God's household, and we uh, are God's sons and daughters and trying to figure out how to, to live that most effectively. No doubt uh, today, more than likely, uh, I'm going to offend just about everybody here, and uh, I know that to be true already. Larry gave a disclaimer last week, so I feel the freedom to give a disclaimer again. Um, if you listen to the first half of the sermon, it'll probably... Uh, perhaps you may conclude with um, some sort of a conservative, chauvinistic, misogynist. And um, so there's a lot of words that our culture likes to throw around, and you might be thinking those things as I'm speaking. But I want to encourage you, hang tight and, and listen to the whole thing. Because in the second half of the sermon, you're likely to conclude that I'm some sort of raging, liberal, revisionistic feminist. So... <laughs> It just really depends on your persuasion and all that kind of stuff. But just hang tight with me and, and listen through because one of my commitments as a pastor and a preacher is to not sit up here and espouse all kind of personal opinions and preferences. My responsibility is to open up the word of God, to not tamper with it and to open it plainly and then just to show you and you along with me what God has said for us. And in that, I just simply explain it. So um, that's my hope. And so uh, everyone will be equally, equally offended. So, um, so that means I'm in probably good, good standing there. So we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And um, before we get going, I just want to say there's a couple things we have to understand before we jump into the text about elders and deacons. And it's this. Whenever you approach a text of scripture, you really, really need to understand the purpose of it. Because the author has an idea in his mind about why he's writing this text. And if we understand the purpose behind why the author wrote the text, we can better understand how to interpret the text in light of the understanding of what the author intended us to know. And so it's really, really important that we understand the purpose. And uh, the purpose will then drive how we interpret. And in all of this, we really need and are dependent on the Holy Spirit to help us. Let's pray and just ask God to just help so, God, we are coming as your people, and uh, we're here under your word. And so I pray, God, that you would help us to really understand what Paul has to say. So grant us through the Spirit a mind that can follow and understand what it is that you want to say. Grant us, by your grace, a heart to believe this. And, God, if there's anything in here which is confusing, I pray you grant clarity and abundance and Lord, we want to make sure as a church that we're being as accurate as possible about what we teach and what we believe and what we sing and what we, what we uh, just really take hold as truth. And so God, would you guard my mouth? 
that if there's anything I'm about to say which perhaps would be unbiblical or outside the bounds of Scripture, would you silence me immediately? But if there's anything which is profitable and helpful for building up your church, I pray that you would help me to say it clearly as I ought to speak. So God, would you grant me these things? Would you grant us these things in measure in accordance with your grace? We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. So what is Paul's purpose for writing 1 Timothy? Once again, that sets the trajectory for how we're supposed to interpret the letter. We start in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, and here's what Paul writes about his purpose. He says, I hope to come to you, being Timothy, soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And so what, you see what Paul's saying, I, I want to come to you, but I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to come to you. And in the event that I can't come to you, I'm writing this letter to help instruct you on how the Christians ought to behave in the church. Now, when he says ought to behave, he does not uh, imply a suggestion as if we have an opportunity to disobey. He's saying this is how you ought to obey. You have to do this. And what's really important to understand is Paul is referring to the people who are in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. It's a pillar and buttress of the truth, he says. And so many people have taken 1 Timothy and they've decided in their minds, actually what's going on here is Paul's writing to a particular church at a particular time um, to particular people about particular things. In other words, this really doesn't have much to do with us anymore. But if you look at the purpose of the church, Paul is saying, look, I'm, I'm writing to the household of God. Now, if Paul intends for us to understand the household of God as only being the church in Ephesus, then what that means is every other church on the face of the planet is not the household of God and is not the pillar and buttress of the truth and is not the church of the living God. Now, is that true? No, that's false. So what Paul has in mind is the idea of the church universal in all times and all places. The church in all times and all places is in fact the church of the living God. A church in all times and all places is in fact the household of God. A church in all times and all places is in fact the pillar and buttress of the truth. And so Paul's writing this letter for all the churches and all the places and all the times. And he's writing it to instruct the Christians who gather there which means this is for us. Here in 2018, Brentwood, California, Golden Hills Community Church, this is for us. This sets uh, some parameters for how we interpret this letter. It, what it really means is we can't go beyond what Paul intends it uh, to mean, which we have to take this chapter and the chapter before as not being about a particular church which no longer applies to us. These are instructions for us today, today. So. What are some things that we see here? Well, one of the things we have to remember is what Larry preached on last week because this chapter flows out of what he preached on last week. And what Paul said doesn't come from his own personal opinions. This is important. Because a lot of people will say, okay, well, if it is Paul writing to the church and it's all the church and all the time, how do we know it's not just Paul's personal opinion? And I would say that's pretty easy because you look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, and where Paul actually writes this, he says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God. I am an apostle by the command of God, our Savior, and of Jesus Christ, our hope. 
In other words, what, what Paul is saying is, look, I'm not taking the initiative here. I'm not the one sending myself. I've been commanded by God as a messenger. That's what it means to be apostle, to be a sent one. I am a messenger of God's. He commanded me to say this. So in effect, if we disobey, disregard, or dismiss Paul's teaching here, it's not so much that we're just neglecting Paul. It's the fact that we are disregarding, disobeying, and dismissing God's teaching. Because God has chosen to use Paul as the instrument by which he teaches us. Now, do you feel the gravity of that? So that means we can't go beyond what is written here. We have to interpret it rightly. And what we saw, what Larry preached last week was the idea of roles within men and women. And he talked about the roles of men and women in the marriage and also in the church. Now, we have to remember what Larry preached on, and this was excellent. What he said was men and women are equal in their standing before God. They're equal. And, and we have to get this in our minds that that is a true thing that the Bible teaches, that men and women are indeed equal. We're, we're both made in the image of God, and therefore we are co-heirs of grace because of Christ, and we are equal in every way. But here's the thing, we're equal in our essence. And I want to make sure we differentiate between the concept of essence and something else which is called function. You see, the essence answers the question, what is this thing? The essence of humanity, what is it to be human? And one of the most dignifying things about what it means to be human is to be made in the image of God. And because we're made in the image of God, that is the thing that unites every human being together. So we treat the poor in a particular way, not because they are poor, not because they have money or whatever. We treat one another equitably because we are all made in the image of God. That is what unites us all together. But at the same time, the essence of what it means to be human is not the same thing as function. Function answers the question, what should that thing do? Now, we have to make sure that we don't twist it. You see, in our culture, a lot of times what we end up doing is we look at the function of a thing and we allow the function of that thing to determine what that thing is. If it can be done this way, then that is what it is. But in reality, we have to understand that that's not how we actually approach life. Um, for the most part, what we do is we start with the, what a thing is, and what a thing is determines how it is used. So a good helpful illustration is uh, Little Mermaid. You've seen the movie. Remember when she was singing in the cave about all her thingamabobs and, and whatchamacallits and uh, gadgets and gizmos aplenty? You remember how she had all that stuff just lined up everywhere? And Ariel is picking stuff off the walls, and she picks out a fork. And we all know it to be a fork. And because it is a fork in its essence, we understand how it should function. It picks up food for us. But what is she, how does she use it? She uses it to put up her hair. And so we have to understand that just because she can use a fork to put up her hair doesn't mean that that is what that thing is. It's, it's a, a, an instrument for, you know, like doing your hair. It's a fork. Does that make sense? So as we look at humanity, we have to realize human beings in their essence are equal. This is what it means to be human. We are made in the image of God. We are equal in every imaginable way with the distinction that we are different in the way in which we function. It's our roles which make us different. And usually conversations about leadership roles in the church start with function and they conclude with essence. But in reality, what we should do is start with essence and then conclude function. 
We should ask, what does it mean to be human? How has God made us? And then we then derive our conclusion of, oh, this then is how we ought to live. So let's start, verse 1. I'm going to warn you ahead of time. I'm going to read verse 1 and spend about 20 to 25 minutes talking about verse 1. So just hang with me. One of the reasons why I'm doing this is because over the last couple weeks, we've received a lot of questions from people wanting to know more detail. People understand what we believe, but sometimes it's very beneficial and profitable to understand why we believe. And so that's what I want to do now is this morning take some time to actually talk about why we believe the things we do about roles of leadership in the church. And uh, we're often as Christians accused of being uninformed. And so this is my effort to help inform us. Let's get informed. Yeah. All right. So here's the thing that we learn about the church as Larry preached on uh, last week is that, um, you know, men and women are equal in their essence, but there are unique roles. And we actually see that God has ordained two different offices in the church to be godly leaders, the role of elders and the role of deacons. We see this most clearly in Philippians chapter 1 um, of how that uh, goes together. But let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1. Paul writes, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. What Paul's using here is the word aspire rather than ambition. The concept of ambition is I have these goals and dreams for myself and I want to make a name for myself. And so I'm going to do whatever's necessary to accomplish these ambitious goals that I have. That's not the word Paul's using. He's using aspire, which means I feel this inclination probably from God, maybe confirmed by other people that I really want to, I want to be involved in this ministry and have this office of overseer. And the office of overseer, Paul says, is a noble task. It's something that God has designated to be significant. And God has ordained two different offices, both significant to lead the church. Like I said, elders and deacons. And we're going to focus primarily on elders this morning, but we'll also see the deacons because they're both important in the church. We see this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, where Paul writes to the Philippian church, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And he writes this letter to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. So what Paul wants to make sure we understand is when you read the book of Philippians, it's written to all the saints who are at the church in Philippi, but he wants to make special attention. He wants to make sure that we're aware of the fact that among the saints in Philippi is a distinct group of people called overseers and deacons. These people are not above the saints. They are among the saints. That's why he uses the word with. So I'm writing to all the saints and among the saints includes these overseers and these deacons. And so those are the two offices that you see throughout the New Testament. Now, I've been uh, using the word elder and also the word overseer uh, interchangeably. Why is that? And the answer is because that's how the Bible uses it. And so what I want to show you is just how actually the, the word overseer and the word elder and the word pastor are oftentimes used interchangeably. And they basically mean the same thing or they're referring to the same person, the same work. We see this in Acts chapter 20. If you remember when Paul was traveling on his missionary journey, he came and uh, he called the elders uh, from Ephesus to meet him on the shores on the beach of a place called Miletus. And so he says, hey, all you elders, come on. And so all the elders arrive on the shores of Miletus. And then we read this in verse 28. 
where Paul says the Holy Spirit has made you elders. He has made you overseers. So he calls the elders, and now he says, you guys are overseers. And the next word is to care or to pastor the church of God. And so in Acts 20, we see all three designations. We see you are elders, and you are overseers, and you are pastors. And God made you that. The Holy Spirit made you that. We see it also in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, where the apostle Peter says, So... I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Now notice verse 1. I'm writing to you elders. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you. Or in other words, pastor the flock of God among you. Exercising oversight. The, the word is overseer. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. And then we see in Titus chapter 1, verse 5 and 7. Paul writes, this is why I left you, Titus and Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then in verse 6, he talks about the qualifications of elders and uh, what they need to possess as far as their character qualities. And then he says in verse 7, the reason why I'm listing these things is because or for an overseer. So he's talking about appoint elders because, and they need to be like this, because an overseer. Uh, as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. And so what we can see in the, in, in the New Testament is the word pastor, the word overseer, and the word elder are all interchangeable. And they're all talking about the same office and what that office does. And so we can basically conclude this. An orderly church, which means a, a church in good order that's doing what it's supposed to be doing, has a plurality of elders who shepherd the church and provide oversight. So a church that's doing what it's supposed to be doing has a plurality of elders, which means it's not a one-man show. And there is, the purpose is for them to shepherd the church, pastor them, and to provide oversight. If you have a church like that, you know that it's a good, healthy, biblical church. If you know of a church that has no elders, you might need to ask a question or two. Okay, so what is the function of the elders? You see, in the passage that we have before us, which I'm going to get to in a little bit, it talks a lot about the qualifications of being an elder, a pastor, or an overseer, but it doesn't talk a lot about what they're supposed to do. So what I'm going to do is add some information for that, so that way we can better understand what they're supposed to do. And sometimes when we read this section of Scripture, I see that the church kind of zones out, and they're like, this is all about overseers and deacons. Who gives a rip about this? What does that have to do with me? Well, remember what Paul said in chapter 3, verse 15. This is so you know how you ought to behave. But also I like this because it provides me with public accountability. And what I mean is this. What I'm doing is preaching my job description. Which means I'm publicly declaring to you from the Bible what it is I'm supposed to be doing. And if I'm not doing it, somebody needs to step up and tell me I'm not doing it. And so it's public affirmation, public accountability. So what is it that elders, pastors, overseers are supposed to do? Well, we see in 1 Timothy 5.17, Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So what Paul does is he recognizes elders or overseers or pastors as having two primary functions. One is, is oversight or rule or authority. And the other one is preaching and teaching. 
And we also see it where Paul identifies a group in Ephesians chapter 4 who are gifts to the church. He says, according to God's grace, God has given the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, in Ephesians 4.11. And then there's this fourth category, and he calls it the shepherds and teachers. Now, it isn't two distinct things, the shepherds and the teachers, because in Greek there's only one definite article, the and yet there are two descriptions, pastors, teachers. So what we would say is the fourth grouping is a combo group, which it's, it's people who are shepherd teachers. That's who they are. And so we can conclude then what an elder or what a pastor or what an overseer should be doing is twofold to rule and to preach and teach or to have authority and to expound with authority uh, the tenets of the faith. Now, this is important. Because a lot of people just think preaching and teaching is a waste of time. They're just like, well, what's the whole point? Uh, why can't we just as a church get together and, I don't know, play soccer out in the field and that's church? Or I know people who post on social media and they're like, here's me at church and it's them drinking a Mai Tai on the beach by themselves. And you look at that and you go, is that church? Is that church? Because, and I don't have enough time to get into it, but church is really a place in which the saints gather. And if you're alone on a beach, you're not gathered with any other saints. So it can't be church. But also the church is the place in which the word of God, the gospel, is upheld and proclaimed. And so the act of preaching itself is a means that God uses to edify his people. And preaching and teaching, that is a supernatural act that God has chosen to use to edify his people. I love what John Calvin says about this. He says, God alone should rule and reign in the church as well as have authority or preeminence in it. And this authority should be exercised and administered by his word alone. Nevertheless, because he does not dwell among us in visible presence, he uses the ministry of men to declare openly his will to us by their mouths as a sort of delegated work, not by transferring to them his right and honor, but only that through their mouths God may do his work, just as a workman uses a tool to do his work. It's an amazing thought. To think that through the act of preaching and teaching, God has chosen to use the mouths of worms like myself to actually proclaim the word and edify his body. Now that is a beautiful supernatural truth. It's something that the elders and the pastors and the overseers are called to do. Now because of that, what the pastors, elders, and overseers are called to do to exercise authority and to teach. When we read chapter 2, verse 12 of 1 Timothy, we can make some conclusions. Let's read that together. Paul writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Now what's interesting about that text is he lists two things that a woman is not permitted to do over a man. And interestingly enough, it's the two things that are reserved for the office of elder, pastor, and overseer. And when you put those things together, you can make this conclusion that the office of elder is a role that is reserved for men only. Men only. Now, this is the point where I become a chauvinistic pig. But hang with me. You know, a lot of times when you read this, People just hate it. There, there's no middle ground. There's not like, huh. It's yes or I hate it. 
And what's interesting is over the years, I've gotten people who hate this thing about how women are not permitted to teach and exercise authority, but they hate it for all kinds of reasons that aren't in the Bible. For instance, we actually received some correspondence not too long ago about this exact thing. And one of the things that was said was this, how dare you say this, that women cannot be pastors, elders, or overseers. Women are incredibly gifted incredibly talented, incredibly intelligent. They are strong and they are creative. To which I would say, amen. Absolutely. There is nothing in the Bible that ever teaches that women are not those things. But the reality is this, Paul never says the reason why women can't be pastors and elders and overseers is because they lack intelligence or giftedness or talent or strength or creativity. That's not Paul's argument. To which they went on and said, well, yeah, and women are just as smart and well-educated. And I would say, well, sometimes they're even smarter and more educated than men. But once again, that's not what Paul's saying here. He does not disqualify women because they are all of these things. What is his rationale? Verse 13. Paul starts with the word in Greek is gar, for, or because, which means this is the grounds for which I made the claim. And he says, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So here's the reality is we can emphatically as a church, especially as men, we can applaud and say amen to women who are gifted and talented and intellectual and all of these things, but we must recognize that the Apostle Paul never says those things are the reason why they're disqualified from pastoral and elder and overseer ministry. There's a different reason, and it has to do with Adam and Eve. So let's actually go and look at what the Bible says about Adam and Eve, shall we? And here's the thing is, it's not so much about what we believe, but I'm trying to help us walk through the why we believe this. So that way we can be informed and understanding because I've been accused so often of being all kinds of stuff, but then I'll generally ask church leaders, but the Bible says this, what do you do with this? And they simply answer by saying, come on, it's 2018. What kind of argument is that? Like that's, that's the worst argument because it means nothing the only thing 2018 has to do with anything is if somebody's asking what's the date other than that it's just eh. and so that's a bad bad foolish foolish argument instead we have to handle the text what does God say so God what do you have to say to us Genesis that's where I found Adam and Eve Genesis chapter 1 and we start in verse 27 you guys with me you guys tracking with me the service feels dead today. I always look forward to the third service. <laughs> and today, you're letting me down. All right, here we go. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, so, so there we go. There's our, there's our great sentence about what God has done. He's created humanity, male and female, he created them, which means we are equal, male and female. We're both made in the image of God. Amazing. Verse 28. The very next thing is God blesses them. You notice that God hasn't commanded them yet. 
They haven't obeyed God. They haven't disobeyed God. They haven't done anything yet. The very first thing God does is blessing. I made you. Now here's my grace and my affection and my love and my blessing. Boom. It's yours. And when you look at that, see, all right. Do you see what happens there is, is we have to understand that the, the state of existence for humanity being made in the image of God is embedded with God's grace and blessing. And then he goes on and gives a command. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it, which is rule or authority. And then... Uh, Verse 29 and 30 talks about uh, food and how people should eat plants and how animals also will eat plants. And then you get to verse 31. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. Now, if you look at the creation account, you see the other five days, God creates, it's good. God creates good, 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 good. And then he gets to day six, and he takes a step back. Look at this. And you know what he says? Very good. The first time he uses that, that term, very good. So it's, it's humanity becomes the crown jewel of his creation because it bears his image in ways that the natural world does not. And he says, now it's very good. So it's God's stamp of approval that there is male and female when it comes to humanity. That is what God desires. That is what God loves. That is what God places a stamp of approval on saying, this is blessed. And then we get to chapter 2. I love chapter 2 of Genesis because of Ch Genesis chapter 1 is kind of a, a flyover, 30,000-foot level perspective of how God created everything. Genesis 2 focuses in everything on day 6. So it's like God saying, hey, do you want to know how you were created? Come here. Check this out. And we focus our attention into day, day 6 in chapter 2. Starting in verse 7, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree. And look at these two things. That is pleasant to the sight and good for food. I love that little, that little nuance because it reminds us that God is not merely a utilitarian God. God creates things for the sheer beauty of it. Just think about that. If you go out and you say, wow, look at that sunset, sunrise, trees, look at that weird animal, whatever. In that moment of acknowledging that unique thing as being beautiful, God is glorified. I love that. It's an end in itself. But also it provides food for us. And there is the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil was there. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now, work, obviously, is before the fall, so work is good. It's very good. And to keep it, to rule, to protect. Verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man. Notice this. He commands who? The man, Adam. And he says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man that, she should be, that he should be alone. I will make him a helper that's fit for him. So God commands Adam specifically, every tree in the garden is yours. Except for that one. That one is a no. But you have every, access to everything else. All millions and billions of trees and plants, yours. Okay? 
So then God creates animals and he brings them up out of the ground and creates them. And Adam, I, I picture this all the time. Adam begins to name the animals and I just imagine him sitting on a stool with a clipboard. And I know that's not true, but still. And he's like, next. And then comes the rhino, uh, rhino, you know, and oh, dung beetle. And so he writes all this stuff down. But then Adam in verse 20 says, but Adam, but for Adam, there was not found a helper that was fit for him. Remember, God says, it's not good for you to be alone. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create a helper for you. And then he creates all the animals, and Adam's like, what? I, I need more than a, like a mule. <laughs> so God creates, verse 21, he caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man while he slept. He took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, and look at the very first thing that this man does. What does he do? He writes poetry or sings a song either way. But that is beautiful right from the beginning. And he says this, this at last is bone of my bones. Or in other words, you and I are made the same. And, and, and flesh of my flesh, you and I, you're not an animal. You're a human like me. And then he says, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And I love to do this with the middle school kids. And I get it that most of us have a, a middle school kind of like personality and a humor. So I just imagine the man looking at this woman who God has given her. He doesn't call her because a lot of times when you read it, it's like, you shall be called woman. And it's kind of like forceful. No, woman. I hate that. We need to realize that it's probably more like this because it's in the context of poetry. He sees her and goes, oh, man. <laughs> you see what I'm talking about? And so the natural conclusion, right? So God makes Adam and Eve, and there's Eve, and Eve comes, and she's like this creature in front of him, and he's like, whoo-hoo. The very next thing, <laughs> verse 24, this is, this is how God has made it. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife are both naked and were not ashamed. You see what's happening here? Adam goes like this. Will you marry me? <laughs> he sees this woman who is perfect for him. And he has to have her for himself and she for him. And so the marriage covenant begins. But if you notice the process, Adam first and then Eve. Adam and then proceeding from Adam is Eve. Which means Adam is the head of Eve. Eve is submissive to Adam. That's the created order. Now in case everyone's hot and bothered about that, you have to realize also God has revealed himself to function in that way. God the Father sent God the Son, and therefore we conclude God the Son, Jesus Christ, proceeds from the Father. The Father is head. The Son submits. But if you notice, it's in role and function, not in essence. Because the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are equal in their essence, co-eternal, co-equal. And yet at the same time, in their roles, you have the Son submitting to the Father, who is the head. Likewise, the church proceeds from Jesus, and Jesus, therefore, is our head, and we are submissive to him. Do you see how that works? So Paul's whole argument is based on the pro proceeding as head and submitting. And male and female have different roles within that, but it does not dictate what their essence is. The Son of God is not less important than Father. 
And therefore, women are not less important than men. They're equal in essence, different in role. All right, let's keep going. Genesis chapter 3. Now we must uh, understand what went wrong. (laughs) Genesis 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And so he comes to the woman. Notice he does not go to the man. Why not? Because he knows that the man is the head. And so he's going to the one who is to be submissive. And he asked this question, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, in other words, Satan it twists God's word and calls into question whether or not God is gracious and loving. But we already know God is gracious and loving, right? I made you, breathe life, blessing. And now all of a sudden he's calling into question whether or not God is any of those things. But Eve, good job Eve. Verse 2, she says to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Have you ever stopped and asked yourself the question how Eve came about that information? Because when it was given in chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, that you can eat of all the trees except for that one, God gave that information exclusively to Adam. How in the world did Eve come about that information? I think the most logical thing is that Adam told her, Eve, uh, when I was by myself and without you, here's what God told me. Oh, okay. So now Satan comes to her and is questioning her. And notice what he does. So God told you you can't eat of anything? What a jerk. He doesn't want you to have any joy. But if you notice that the command is not that you can't eat of anything, it's the command that you may eat of everything. Which means in the garden, it was not a million no's and one yes. It was the opposite. God gave Adam and Eve a million yeses. You want that? Go for it. Yes to that one. You like that plant? Go for that. Climb that tree. Build that thing. This is all yours. It's for you. There's one no, though. That thing right there, that plant, that tree, don't you touch that one. Everything else is yours. The world is yours. I don't know about you, but that sounds freeing to me. But you notice what Satan does. He makes sure that that Eve is only focused on the one prohibition at the exclusion of the bountiful pleasures of the million yeses that God has offered. Do you see that? And then he says to the woman, the serpent, Eve, you won't surely die. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see what Satan does? Eve, God's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to eat from this tree because he is a miser and he's stingy and he doesn't want you to have any kind of joy. And he also knows if you eat it, you're going to become like him. At this point, Eve and Adam should have stood up in rebellion against this deceiver, and they would have said, what are you talking about that I can become like God? I'm made in his image. I already am like him. And in that, they could have easily ended the entire temptation, but instead of doing that, what happens? We continue on. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, she ate. She gave some to her husband who was there with her, and he ate. So Eve saw it. She took it. She ate. 
And all of this, I think, lies at the feet of Adam. You see, Adam never even stepped in. As the head of Eve, he never came to her defense. He did not lead her. He did not fight for her. He, he stood idly by and did nothing. He refuses to defend her, and he just lets it all happen while he's sitting there. Huh? Brothers and sisters, that is the beginning of the end. The downfall of relationship, not just in marriage, but in every kind of human relationship. And then you see this, God begins to walk in the cool of the garden in verse 8. The man and the wife were hiding themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to, in verse 9, who? To the man. You see, God was walking in the cool of the garden because he wanted to have a conversation about what just happened. But you notice he doesn't say, Adam and Eve, get out here. Instead he says, Adam... You and I need to talk. And then Adam says, I heard you and I was afraid, so I hid myself. Verse 11, God says, oh, yeah, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? You notice he's holding Adam accountable, not Eve, yet. And verse 12, I love this. The man said, uh-uh, it was the woman whom you gave to me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. It's her fault. Isn't that, the, isn't that how marriage works? <laughs> and you can see right here, it's, it's blame shifting. It's not taking responsibility. And men, I'm going to be harsh with you and that's okay because I'm harsh with myself in doing it. We at some point have to make the conscious decision that we are going to stand and fight for the spiritual welfare of our wives and our children. And we have to defend them against Satan's attacks and, and schemes. And we have to stand up and take ownership for leading our families well. And we can no longer just sit idly by and just go, hmm, and be addicted to Fortnite and pornography. You kidding me? We need to get about this, man. We need to not be like Adam. We need to be like the new Adam. You know who I'm talking about? Jesus. In Romans 5, we're told that Jesus is the new Adam. Remember when Jesus went to the garden in Gethsemane, tempted by Satan, all night long praying, agonizing, sweating drops of blood? He never gave in. And in fact, Jesus overcame Satan in the garden and in fact went to the cross. And by going to the cross, he took upon himself the sins of all of us who believe. And not only that, but he was dead and buried and rose from the grave victoriously. And he becomes the new creation. And he says, any of you who believe me that my work on the cross is sufficient, my obedient life is enough, and my resurrection is a foretaste of what's to come. If you trust that, I'm going to reorient and reconcile and redeem all things to myself. I'm making all things new again. And so we as men need to stand up and quit being like the old Adam and start being like the new Adam where we fight faithfully for our, for our wives and, and for our children as faithful husbands to the covenant that God has given us. Does that make sense? So men, like in every service, there's reluctant clapping. <laughs> men are like, hmm, if I don't, she's going to get mad at me, so... And the wives are like, I want to clap so bad, but if I do it, it's going to be another argument. <laughs> and you laugh because you know what I'm talking about is true. Men, don't shy away from this. Let's go to battle. Fight the good warfare. 
And if you notice what Eve says, verse 13, what is it that you have done, God says to her, and the woman says, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. You know, people get all hot and bothered about 1 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul says it was not Adam who was deceived, it was the woman. And they're like, how dare he just cast all the blame on the woman? No, 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 Paul's just, just quoting her confession. He's not accusing her of anything that she didn't already confess to. It's not oppression of women. It's just a recognition of what happened. You see, brothers and sisters, here's what we need to understand. Satan's schemes was to minimize the, the millions of yeses in the garden and to maximize the attention of the one prohibition. And likewise, that same teaching is happening in the church today. Well, what's happening is people are saying, women, if you really want to be like God, you want to be free, you want to experience God's love, you want to be able to love people well, then you need to do exactly what Eve did, namely disobey God. This same kind of subtle deception is sweeping across the Christian landscape. If you want to be truly free, then embrace your God-given identity. Reject these oppressive leadership roles in the church and marriage. Teach, exercise authority. Do it, and you will be more like God. Do you see what's happening? Do this, and you'll be more like God. And instead, what God is saying is, no, 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 you don't love me more by disobeying me. I've put the order in place. And through Christ, I'm reordering and reshaping everything. In fact, we experience more of God's love through obedience than disobedience. So elders and overseers and pastors are to be men, not women. But this is not an oppressive, oppressive thing. This is freeing, and here's why. Because what's true in the garden is true in the church. Women, there are a million yeses to how you can serve in the church. And only one no. Let's not fall victim to Satan's schemes of focusing our attention on the one prohibition and ignore the million yeses that God has for you. You are gifted. You are talented. You are creative. You are an amazing asset in every way imaginable to the church in a myriad of ways don't let Satan deceive you and think that the only way you can be a contributor in the church is that one prohibition. It's not true. In fact, let me, let me do this and then we'll wrap it up. Women are essential to the life of the church. Here's how I want to show this. Luke chapter 8 verse 1 where Jesus is doing his ministry. It says that soon afterward Jesus went through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 disciples were with him and also some women. And he had been, uh, who had been healed from spirits and infirmities. And Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, uh, Herod's household manager. And Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. Do you see what Jesus does? He does not exclude women from the ministry. Instead, he invites them in, into the work of the ministry. Jesus surrounds himself with these women to serve. And then if, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about this giftedness. He says to each member of the church, that means men and women, each member of the church, you've been given a manifestation of the spirit for the common good, or in other words, to build up the church. And then he goes on to talk about how the body is really one entity, but it's made up of many members. And what he's saying is women, God in the Holy Spirit has given you gifts to build up the body. Do not neglect that gift. 
But at the same time, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. In other words, Paul holds these two things in, in distinction, but also in balance where he says, women, you are highly gifted and you are a huge asset to the church and Jesus wants you a part of his church. But at the same time, the office of elder where you lead and teach with authority in the church, that's reserved for men. But you have a million yeses and one no. And not only that, but we have to realize that Paul actually affirms the ministry of women in all kinds of ways. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 19, he tells Timothy to greet two people, Prissa and Aquila, or otherwise known as Priscilla and Aquila who are a husband and wife ministry team that Paul takes with him on many different ventures. In fact, in Acts chapter 18, they encounter a man named Apollos from Alexandria where he comes to the church in Ephesus, you know, the very church where Timothy is leading. And they hear him preach. And in verse 26, he was speaking boldly in the synagogue. And when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, Apollos, they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. You notice the text does not say, and the husband or the man instructed him more accurately. Instead, it says they, they, husband and wife. And so that tells us that Priscilla and Aquila weren't operating as elders or, or uh, overseers or pastors, but instead they're, they're operating as brothers and sisters in Christ and encouraging this great eloquent speaker of the gospel named Apollos. And so even the woman in this relationship is providing insight to this man. You know, me personally, my pastoral ministry, I've been greatly helped by Nancy Guthrie, who's helped me to read the Bible well. I've read her books, listened to her podcast. She's amazing. I also am helped tremendously by a woman named Elise Fitzpatrick as she helps me to understand how to apply the gospel to my life. I've been helped by a woman named Jen Pollock Michael who is incredibly gifted at looking at the culture around us and helping to understand how we can think well about the culture. And I need you to hear me and, and, and hear this. I have benefited greatly from the ministry of women. And so I say, women, there is a million yeses that God has for you in the church and only one no. And we should focus on those things. I am literally out of time. I have three minutes. Holy smokes. I'm just going to cruise through these things real quickly. In the church as elders and overseers, pastors, there's qualifications. All, all except for one are qualifications having to do with character. Not giftedness, but character. And we'll read these quickly because these are pretty obvious. Therefore, an overseer, elder, pastor must be above reproach, which means people can't accuse you of being crazy. Living your life wild and reckless. The husband of one wife, which means you ought to honor your marriage covenant with your wife. You be sober-minded, which means to be vigilant and attentive and aware. It's kind of like walking through a big city at night. You know how that works. You don't just walk. Mm -hmm. You actually know what's going on, looking around you. Self-controlled, which means you don't give in to excess. You're not overwhelmed by addiction. Respectable, which means your life is an honorable thing. You have a uh, life that's in order. And then two things which are important, hospitality and ability to teach. Hospitality is not what you typically think where we think of, you know, like doilies and finger foods. Hospitality is welcoming strangers, inviting people who are not like you into your presence. So pastors, elders, overseers, and men at large, 
Be eager to seek out ways to share your home and share your resources and your time and your gifts with people around you. Ability to teach, not just to communicate information, but also to defend and correct when necessary. They're not a drunkard, which means, obviously, don't be drunk. Not violent, but gentle. And what that means, obviously, is we need to make sure there's a sense of being gentle rather than wanting to go to blows all the time. If your first response is to act out your MMA desires, you can't be an elder. Not quarrelsome, which means you don't go around looking for fights to argue with people for the sheer kicks and giggles of it. Not a lover of money, which means you're, you're not addicted. Remember what Jesus said? You cannot love God and money. You need to pick one. So you need to love God. And then it goes into his family. He must manage his own household well. The word manage is the idea of supervision with care and tenderness. It's the idea that you should pastor your family. Because if, verse 5, if you can't pastor your family, how in the world are you going to pastor the church? You got to make sure that you are tender and affectionate as you supervise your children and your wife. Verse 6 he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Our, our culture is addicted to, to young people, young, young, young. It's amazing. They're only this age, that age. Look at all that they've accomplished. We need to make sure that as we look at pastors and overseers and elders that they're not recent converts or else they'll be puffed up with pride and be condemned. Verse 7, they must be well thought of by outsiders or else they'll fall into disgrace. Your reputation in the church also should be equivalent to your reputation outside of the church. Who you are on Sunday and who you are in your care group or your small group on a Tuesday or Wednesday night is the same man that you are on Tuesday afternoon at, at work. You got to keep it real. You got to be the same man or else you fall into disgrace. Then he gets into the deacons. They must be dignified. That means respectable. Not double-tongued, which means you say one thing and do another. They can't be addicted to much wine, which doesn't mean they, they have to be teetotalers, which means you completely refrain from alcohol, but at least you understand that you're not addicted to it. Not greedy for dishonest gain. Many of the deacons, they serve the physical needs of the church, and so you better not be somebody that wants to skim a little off the top for yourself. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Your conscience should be clear. You actually believe what you say you believe. You don't feel guilty at night. You're like, man, I hope I don't get found out. I don't really believe this stuff. Verse 10, let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. There's a lot of people out there that want to be known for being a humble servant, but they don't really want to actually sacrifice and serve. You get what I'm saying? They want the reputation of being that without actually being that. So we need to test them and, and see what they're made of. Verse 11. They must be, like their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderous, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. There's a lot of application here, much of which you, can, you understand because you're thinking people. What does it mean to be a deacon? A deacon is somebody who serves the physical needs of the church. The deacon's office began in Acts chapter 6 where the apostles said, we don't have time to serve tables. We're doing the ministry of the word and prayer. So they raised up seven men full of the Holy Spirit who would serve as deacons. 
and they would serve and assist God's people in very tangible ways. And that expresses itself in so many diverse ways. And let me conclude with this question. Can women serve as deacons? Good question. There's three answers. I'm not going to tell you which one I fall into because I want you to have a discussion. Start in verse 11. The first answer is no. Verse 11 says, their wives, deacons, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderous, not sober-minded, faithful in all things, and let the deacon each be the husband of one wife. If you see that, there's no way that women can be uh, deacons because women can't have wives. I know in our culture they can, but they can't. That make sense? And so we need to make sure that we read this and we understand, okay, that's one way to look at it. Deacons cannot uh, be women because husbands need to be deacons. Okay? That's one answer. No. Second answer, which is obviously going to be yes. If you read verse 11, it says their wives, and then it describes what kind of women they ought to be. But in the Greek, the possessive pronoun there, their, is not in the Greek. It's not in the original language. It just simply says wives or women. And so the NIV translate this verse like this. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. In other words, the NIV says, look, we're not making a decision on whether or not uh, this has to do with wives or whatever. We're just simply saying the women, women deacons, they need to be these kinds of things. Now to add to that, we can see in Romans chapter 16, verse 1 and 2 in the ESV, it reads this. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Centria. However, in Romans 16, verses, verse 1 in the NIV, it reads like this. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Centria. So if you look at that, the conclusion is, yeah, women can be deacons. That's cool. And then there's a third answer, which is, uh-uh. <laughs> which is perhaps an honest answer. And so how people would say is this. If you look in Luke chapter 8, Jesus does ministry, and there's a lot of women that are assisting Jesus. And so women can't be deacons in the sense that they hold the office, but they can be deaconesses, which means that they are women who assist the deacons in providing the services to, to the church in tangible ways. So we have no, yes, maybe, or some sort of middle ground. I love Scripture. I love its clarity, but I also love the murkiness of it because it causes us to do this, to pray and ask God, what do you want us to do? So God, what do you want us to do? With all that is being said here, Lord, we know without a shadow of a doubt that elders and overseers and pastors, you have designed to be men and so, God, I pray that you would help us as a church to call men into this ministry. It's a noble task. And yet, God, I have this sense that many men are reluctant to pursue eldership because they feel as though they don't qualify. And yet, God, as we looked at these characteristics, if they don't qualify to be elders, they're not qualified to be Christians. And so, God, would you raise up men who would seek to serve you in this office and grant them everything they're going to need. 
Over the years, Lord, I've realized it's not necessarily that you call those who are already equipped, but what you do is you equip those who you are calling. So God, do that for us. And God, as far as deacons is concerned, God, would you help us to walk faithfully according to the scriptures and to do what it is we see there. God, help us to be a church that loves each other well and serves each other well. So God, thank you for these things. Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you how Jesus is the one who's making all things new again. And through his work, he's reconciling, redeeming, and restoring all things to himself. In his name we pray. Amen.